0: Hello and welcome to Acro Tales, a regular podcast that explores the fascinating world of acromegaly and what it means to live with such a rare condition. My name's Dan Jeffries and I was diagnosed with acromegaly in 2007. And in each of these episodes, I'll be interviewing somebody from around the world uh, who's been diagnosed with acromegaly and has a fascinating story to tell. And if you don't know what acromegaly is and you've just stumbled across this uh, across this podcast, head over to the acrotales.com website where you can find out much more about acromegaly and everything that that entails. I am really pleased to have on uh, this episode uh, a young lady called Lauren who comes from Kent in the UK. Lauren has a particularly fascinating story to tell. So, Lauren, first of all, I'm really, really grateful to you for joining me for this uh, conversation. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. Just finished work. <laughs> Excellent.
0: So you should be feeling fully refreshed for a yeah, or not. nice chat. <laughs> a nice chat about your rare conditions. So we've met a few times, and um, I think it's important actually for the listeners. Uh, to know um, firstly I'm going to ask how old you are
1: I'm 29
0: you're 29 years old okay what? and can I ask when were you diagnosed with that acromegaly I
1: was diagnosed in 2015
0: okay so in your mid-20s that's right yeah so perhaps let's go back a few years then uh, and maybe just tell your story how you found out about it the signs the symptoms uh, the concerns that you had
1: So, I think as soon as I stopped puberty, really, things went right, you know, with the periods and the headaches. I went to the GP probably once a week and they were saying, It's down to your job. I'm a hairdresser. It's down to my job. I'm on my feet too much. I look at my phone too much. I should try to lose weight. I was eating a melon a day, you know? It was. Right. So, I thought maybe this is just how everyone feels. And I, I was making it up in my head, you know, because the, the GP, the doctor always was saying that I was okay. Of course, they didn't do any tests, but that's that's just what they said to me. So this went on till about 2012. So it went on for about six to eight years, I'd say. Wow. So 2012, I thought, right, I've had enough. Mate, this just must be how everyone feels. And I went to my doctor before I went traveling. I, went, I was away for two years. And I said to him, are you sure I've still not got my period? You know, like it's very irregular. That was my main thing because I thought maybe I was making my head pain up, but I had that physical symptom of not having a period. Um, yeah. And he said, no, it's fine. Just come and see me when you're back. And I said, well, I'm traveling. It's not a holiday. I don't know when I've got a one-way ticket. So I went and I had a great time, but was was poorly, you know, fatigued and headaches and that kind of thing. Right. And then when my mum came to visit me and she just noticed a massive difference in me physically, in physically, yeah, in my appearance. And she couldn't understand why I was in these amazing places, but had to go to bed so early, why, why I couldn't enjoy it a little bit more. Right. So I came home and mum came to the doctors with me and kind of demanded that we have some tests done. So this was late 2014. And then early okay. 2015, I finally saw an endocrinologist. Within minutes of being in the room with the endo, he said he thinks I have something called acromegaly, And I was like, oh, great. Well, give me a pill or something, you know, and I'll be fine. Yeah. Had no idea what it was. <laughs>
0: Of course. Well, why would you? It's such a such a weird word when you hear it. I've first never even time, heard of
1: the pituitary gland before, uh-huh. you know.
0: So you were uh, sat in the, in the endocrinologist waiting room. You hear the word acromegaly. What next?
1: My mum felt a relief that there was actually a diagnosis where, as I felt, he's wrong. He's okay. not right because... I'd been told for so long that there was nothing wrong with me, and I was making it up, essentially.
0: So that, that must have been sort of psychologically quite difficult then, because obviously, for so many years, you've been told by professionals there is nothing wrong with you,
1: and you are meant to trust the doctors, right?
0: Yeah, and then, and then, eight nine years later, it's well, there is something very wrong with you, and you have this brain mm-hmm. tumor or pituitary condition that must have been at that such a young age as well. So, how old are you when this you were being told this?
1: So I was 23,
0: 23, okay. 24, around that age. Okay. Yeah. So you found it a shock and, and difficult to deal with, I guess.
1: I did, but I always had the attitude where I thought, okay, fine, I have this, but it's not going to stop me. I'm going to get through it and there's going to be another side. From, from the moment I left the hospital, that was my attitude. And of course, there's been moments in the journey where I thought, yeah, this, I can't see myself getting out of it. Of course, it's a lifelong.
0: Yeah, it is a lifelong journey. So you you saw your endocrinologist and they, I'm assuming they sent you off for an MRI scan?
1: That's to... correct. Yeah, so he sent me off for an MRI, still at my local hospital. Um, and he actually, the consultant endocrinologist met me from the mri room which is unheard of right and was like yeah you have acromegaly i'm referring you to king's college hospital today okay so within a week i'd heard from king's college hospital to go and meet my new endocrinologist in london who would then introduce me to the neurosurgeon etc
0: okay and and what did they tell you then what were the results of the mri in terms of the tumor what was
1: yeah, this this was the most shocking bit for me because the local endocrinologist kind of said, "Yeah, it's a simple operation, fairly simple. We'll just go up your nose with a small Hoover and suck the tumour out." So I thought, "Oh, that doesn't sound too bad." Um, and when I sat down with my endocrinologist at King's College Hospital, Dr. Alwyn, he it was very difficult. I'd never been in this situation before, and I could tell by the way he was approaching the conversation. That maybe it wasn't so straightforward as I'd initially thought, and he said, "Right." I remember the words so clearly. He said, "Right, Lauren, these things come small, medium, large, and yours is extra, extra large." So you're going to get to know me very, very well. And I just thought, "What on earth is he going on about?"
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, you want so, to hear small, you want to hear small, medium, and large. You think oh, I'll take a medium.
1: <laughs> yeah uh, me doing being okay
0: <laughs> but extra extra large and so do you, what did they tell you the size of the tumor was
1: so it was seven centimeters so just a little bit bigger than a credit card
0: right god blimey that's really big
1: so he said it was the site the length of my middle finger and of course my fingers aren't small
0: okay and had he had he encountered a tumor that size before do you know
1: he had, didn't say so, but the way he was talking to me, and he's actually said afterwards he didn't know how to approach the subject because he hadn't had a, this situation, you know, with it's the my pituitary tumour was acting like a cancer, and that's very unusual. So he didn't know what the prognosis, you know, that would be.
0: Yes, I mean, I think, you know, most I, I, I had seven millimetres eight millimetres was my tumour most people if it's over two centimetres is a macro adenoma uh, which is considered big seven centimetres is is pretty huge so did they get you in for surgery very quickly
1: absolutely amazing very very quickly I think maybe I waited three weeks and in those three weeks I was back and forth to King's for like different scans different meetings with like pre-ops neurosurgeons that kind of thing
0: and had you noticed a a change in your appearance you know just before going into surgery over these years had you seen this change in in the way you looked that most acromegalics have to live with
1: i yes definitely the thing i noticed most was my hands and feet i think with because i was younger of course i was looking back on pictures thinking i look so different but i guess that's normal you know
0: okay yeah that's it and psychologically your brain sort of plays this trick on you You think well i'm just growing older or i'm just changing you don't associate it with a a medical condition let alone a tumor
1: i mean the doctors put me on water retention tablets for my hands they didn't they didn't do anything because it wasn't the water so that that was my biggest thing growing out of shoes and and rings
0: and i'm guessing you know it's probably you've thought about this but at such a young age that's really a challenge you know again most people get acromegaly in their 30s maybe their 40s it's particularly cruel to have it um you know at that age where you're still developing and you're kind of at your prime in in many ways
1: yeah yeah i suppose but i feel i don't know I still don't if you're living
0: through it if you're living through it it's different I guess maybe
1: yeah yeah I don't really look back on it like that like in a way I was glad I wasn't diagnosed a little bit earlier because then I would never have been able to go away for two years like I did
0: okay okay
1: see for the foreseeable foreseeable future that's just not an option because of hospital visits and medication you know
0: So looking back at those pictures then that you've kindly shared with us, um, how, how does what, what do you think when you look at those?
1: I was so ill, but I didn't know it, but I was living life to the full.
0: Okay. And that's an amazing attitude to have. And I've, I, I've met you a few times now, Lauren, and you definitely have a, a very positive attitude towards this condition, um, which uh, I think is important to, to go back to the surgical procedure um you know had f- really further complications post-surgery didn't it so what happened you know uh, after the tumour was removed
1: so after my first so I had one transphenidal surgery up my nose um and two open brain surgeries craniotomies so after my first craniotomy I had third nerve palsy in my face which meant my right side of my face shut off completely which was the side where my tumour grew behind my eye um so I couldn't open my eye or my mouth and that lasted for about three four months and just as it was kind of getting better and I could open my eye I no I'm lying
0: it's all right we've these things go on It's weird when we try and recount our stories because we don't always get it right. And I I think that's sometimes a good thing because it's not always completely fresh in our memory, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So I had the third nerve palsy after the transphenidal surgery. That's right. And then after my first craniotomy, I remember waking up and the third nerve palsy had healed by then. So I could open my eye. I I Mm. opened my eyes after the craniotomy and one of them was just kind of going like out of my left eye I could see fine but the other one it was kind of like uh, the only way to describe it was just like a cloud coming over slowly like gray and then by the time I've told my nurses and the doctors there it's black my right eyes just got no light perception at all not I couldn't even see a shadow um and that's I don't really know why that's never really been looked into but from what the neurosurgeon said, it the tumour grew around my optic nerve on my right side. So when he removed the tumour, unfortunately, the nerve collapsed, which means it doesn't connect to my brain. Yeah. So I don't have the vision.
0: That's not uncommon. I mean, it doesn't happen often. But I think with particularly large tumours, there is the, the possibility for the optic nerve to be infringed or touched or you know affected in some way and there can be some visual loss but I think you know just to put that into into uh, perspective for everyone that's listening literally within two hours of you waking up from surgery you were blind in one eye
1: yeah and I remember going into surgery when I was in the pre-op room I was getting my big socks on <laughs> that was my main concern um is my eyesight going to be okay because I've had the third nerve palsy so I kind of had a little bit of a taste of what if it was what it was going to be like to have one eye because my eyelid was permanently closed for a few months um and he said it's less than 1% of patients that have problems with their eyesight post surgery so I was quite confident with that figure but of course okay. I was in that
0: 1% yeah well, welcome to the one-eye club, you know. <coughs> <laughs> There's
1: nothing wrong with it, you know. It
0: no, doesn't make a you know, difference. I might walk into the occasional door now and again. But, yeah, it's know, great it's... for ignoring people. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, it is. And, and and this is the kind of spirit that we have to sort of take on board when we're dealt these these hands, I think. So, you know, I love it. It's really refreshing.
1: Yeah, in my uh, day-to-day and... life, I don't even notice there's, okay. I've only, I only got vision out of one eye I've got my driving licence, I'm a hairdresser it's quite funny when I tell my clients I've got one eye, <laughs> they're not quite sure how to react I don't think
0: yeah Don't. <laughs> yeah, they, what do they expect to leave with a like half lopsided haircut yeah.
1: with... I mean I've had some ridiculous comments they say I've had someone say to me before so does it mean you can only see half <laughs> of me <laughs> how does that laugh
0: So you're out of hospital. Uh you've lost vision in one eye. And obviously you mm-hmm. you know you've had the, the the changes that can happen sort of visually. How was life after that then when you you came out of hospital? First of all, your friends and family, how did they respond to this? And and then how did you sort of approach life uh, and sort of getting on with the day-to-day stuff?
1: So after I came out of hospital after losing my right eye, I was then told I needed a second craniotomy. So I was really preparing to go back into surgery just to get well enough to then have another operation done. So then I was told I was going to have the second one. So that was done. And then the next treatment plan was radiotherapy. So I was always just kind of, it was like bang, 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 next, next, next. So I always just was kind of getting fit enough to then... Have the next treatment which was the radiotherapy so there was obviously
0: still residual tumor left over
1: yeah they couldn't get it all out unfortunately because it grew around my okay. artery. and i think
0: uh, again we're perhaps assuming that people listening know what a craniotomy is could you maybe just explain that
1: so essentially it's open brain surgery where they go in through the skull remove a piece of the skull and then get in the brain that way rather than up the nose Because my tumour was extra large, they needed to get into that extra space.
0: Okay. And when they explained that to you, you know, pre-surgery, most people are pretty scared about them going up the nose. How did you feel about that prospect of a craniotomy? Mm,
1: Obviously very scared. But the thing I was most concerned about was losing my hair. Because I think everything with the appearance with that acromegaly, there wasn't really a goal in sight for me to get better at that point. I knew it would be such a long journey. So for them having to have a bald head as well, which I think as well, when people have bald head, it's always people think you've got cancer and that's not the case.
0: Okay. So it,
1: but I didn't, yeah, it was the
0: aesthetic appearance, you know, the, uh, and I'm not treating that trivially. I, 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 everyone uh you know responds to these um surgical procedures and outcomes in different ways and I can imagine when you're when you're young you've got a big head of hair you're a hairdresser you know the prospects of potentially losing all your hair must have been
1: yeah you know I mean you know you're going to wake up from surgery feeling like rubbish and then to have then to look extra rubbish you know with a bald head I mean some people look absolutely some women look great with the bald head but you know, you just think you're going to feel rubbish. And then I thought, well, I'm going to look rubbish for ages as well.
0: And how are your friends and family uh, around this time? How important was that network to you?
1: My family are still amazing. My brothers and my mum and dad and my aunties and cousins are just great. Okay. My friends, a few of my friends were really, really good. But I did lose friends as well. Okay. Definitely, I've lost friends Mm. through the journey.
0: Because they've not understood what you're going through or they've just not supported?
1: Not understood, been a bit ignorant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think as well, because you have had brain surgeries, you've had radiotherapy, people expect you just to be better. When with acromegaly, it's not like that. So I think they just didn't quite understand that process some friends
0: yeah and again it's you know it's a hidden condition isn't it it's
1: yeah i'm not walking around with a bandage
0: no exactly and and even if you're blind in one eye that's not necessarily a visible problem Mm -hmm. you know so yes it's it's hard for people to understand that sometimes and and um i i I totally get where you're coming from but i i think you know the family network is such an important factor in helping you feel better and helping you sort of rediscover yourself a bit post-surgery yeah um and obviously you know it sounds to me lauren uh, like life has been pretty good i mean i know that for example uh a few years or well, soon after you came to i think the first acromegaly meetup that we did in the uk um you were you got to do a feature on the local news
1: yeah that's right
0: was that a cathartic experience that you're kind of accepting it?
1: Yeah, I think I've always kind of accepted it and I've just thought, well, I'm going to grip my teeth and get on with it. You know, there's no point looking back thinking, what if, why me? Thought, so I've got this, let's deal with it head on. And I really wanted to raise awareness because I thought, if my GP had maybe spotted the signs before, I could have potentially not gone blind in one eye.
0: Yeah.
1: So my main thing with the press was to try and raise a little bit more of awareness
0: okay and that and i've seen the video of that and it was absolutely fantastic and you must have got some amazing feedback from it uh from you know again yeah i did i think yeah okay and can i just going back to that one point do you and it's understandable if you do but do you kind of feel any um not remorse but kind of annoyance maybe that gps and those that are specialists didn't pick this up earlier
1: I mean, the specialists were great, the endocrinologist that I saw. But the GP, yeah, for sure. He, yeah. for so long, just kind of made me out to feel like I was lying. Um,
0: it's, it's very different. I was yeah. at, um, at the Medics for Rare Diseases uh, <clears throat> symposium yesterday, and the real focus is on something called the Diagnostic Odyssey. And the Diagnostic Odyssey is that journey in which you are finally – diagnosed with your rare condition and of course it's very hard for gps because there are there are over seven thousand rare conditions and Mm -hmm. yours acromegaly you might be the only person they've ever come into contact with and they probably read about it yeah so they probably read about it in a in their medical textbooks 20 years ago when they were studying it and to see all those little signs and symptoms is really really hard and the trouble is is that we get back we get battered around. Um,
1: I would never have the, expected them to diagnose me with acromegaly, but I would have expected them to take my symptoms a little bit more seriously.
0: Okay. And maybe so being referred upwards and.
1: That's you know. right. Yeah.
0: Okay. I, I, I totally get that. So Lauren, you've got such an amazing and positive attitude. If you were to um, meet someone now who's uh, recently been diagnosed with acromegaly, what what would you tell them? What would be your words of advice? Mm,
1: that's a hard one. What would be my words of advice? I'm not. I don't know. I don't look at myself and think I have an illness. It's just me. Maybe this is because I was di- This all started at an earlier age. You know. But I don't look at myself any differently from the person next to me. I don't think I'm less able than them or, you know, I don't. No, I totally
0: understand that. And and I'm I'm kind of in a similar frame of mind as you. Um, and it's, you know, it's to be applauded, but it's the way that we're made up. And, and for some people, uh, it's not quite as easy for them to be able to do that. I do think you're right. It's something that because it was kind of being put on you from such an early age, It's almost been part of your life, not from the beginning. From as long as I can
1: remember, really, from being in an
0: adult life. Yeah, but not far off. Lauren, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. And um, I know I keep saying it, but you are really, for me, one of the true inspirational voices of Acromakerly. Because you're... You were dealt... Really? Yeah, really. Because you were dealt such a rough blow and early on with a humongous tumor uh, that's left you blind in one eye within 2 hours of waking up and yet your sort of spirit and your um positivity is completely addictive i think and uh so i'm i'm truly grateful to you joining us on this interview so thank you very much
1: thank you can i just say thanks to my hospital <laughs> i just yeah one last thing i love my hospital king's college hospital they're the best people <laughs>
0: thank you lauren that's awesome And uh, if you found Lauren's story really interesting and would like to hear other Acro Tales, you know what to do. Head over to acrotales.com where you can find the ever-expanding library of interviews. Uh, So this is me, Dan Jeffrey, signing off, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time for another Acro Tale.